13, we're going through to chapter 3, verse 6. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? but yours are not. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If they do, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And people do not pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. As his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Please keep your Bibles open there. Sean, I'm going to switch over to the wireless. Is it on? Yes, very good. There we go. I do like to wander around and wave my hands. I get in trouble when I'm driving. Not because I wander around, because I wave my hands and I'm supposed to be on the wheel. Um, I want to ask you a question. What are the four... Pre this is not a rhetorical question, by the way. And there's two people in the room, at least, who should be able to answer it. What's the four prerequisites for someone going to the doctor? I need to make a booking. I didn't have that on my list. <laughs> <laughs> But we're going to call that number three, admitting you need help. Yes, making a booking is that step. Getting help from the doctor. Yep, what else? You need to be sick. That's right. 
What else? Diagnosis. Yes? Well, no, that kind of happens after, doesn't it? When you go to the doctor? Not knowing how to fix it. Not, well, not knowing how to fix it, that's right. Now, who's got, who's got a st stubborn father or grandfather or is a stubborn father who won't admit they're sick? Anyone got one of that? <laughs> She's not talking about me, by the way. Um, here's a few things I had, and there's some few things that you added that are excellent. <coughs> you need to be sick. You need to believe you're sick. You need to admit you need help as well. So you might even know that you're sick and go, meh, I'll be right. Um, and then you need to actually make a booking. You need to go get help um, from the doctor. Now, the Bible says that every single person in the world is sick with a sickness called sin, a disease called sin. We're all born with it. We live with it. We all die with it as well. Romans chapter 7, sin continues to live in our flesh even when we've become a Christian. We still sin and we die with it unless, of course, Jesus comes back before we die. Christians and non-Christians wrestle with sin. <coughs> and the reason that most people never find the cure is the same reason that sick people don't go to the doctor. They don't believe they're sick. I'm not sick, I'm fine. They already, in other words, for a sinful person, that person already thinks they're righteous. I'm not sick, I'm fine. I'm not a sinner. I'm all good. I'm fine with God. I'm right with God. I'm righteous. We call that self-righteousness. Or they know that they are sick, but they refuse to get help. They think to themselves, no, 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 I'll be right. I'll self-diagnose. I'll sort it out. I'll Google something. I'll be okay. In terms of sin, we call that good works or legalism, thinking you can work your way to the cure. We, all of us, struggle to admit that we need help and we also struggle to receive help with thanksgiving, don't we? What's your knee-jerk reaction when someone says, can I do this for you? Can I help you out? Can I cook you a meal? What's your knee-jerk reaction? Oh, no, no, I'm okay. I'm all right. <laughs> Even if you're on your deathbed, that's just your knee-jerk reaction, isn't it? We don't like to admit we need help. We don't like to put people out. We don't like to accept grace. Our knee-jerk is to resist accepting grace from others. Even if we do need help, instinctively we resist and we refuse grace and kindness. Isn't that strange? Our sinfulness inclines us towards self-righteousness and legalism rather than inclining us towards grace and accepting kindness from others. I was out to breakfast with Lara and almost her whole family on holidays a couple of weeks ago. Both the sisters were there. There was nine children there and their parents were there. I think 15 of us were all told out for breakfast together. At the end of breakfast, my father-in-law snuck off and he paid the bill for everybody. It wasn't planned. It was just a gift of grace from him. Now, all three sisters' knee-jerk reaction was, oh, Dad, you shouldn't have done that. Um, you shouldn't have paid for us all. They're concerned. Their parents are retired. Their concern is their finances and all that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but I guess he decided he could afford it. My reaction was, woohoo! Thanks, Dad! 
that's awesome. I'm going to pick up the tab for my family. I was not particularly brilliant except in grace, just particularly stoked I didn't have to pay for my uh, side of the bill. I wonder how you go at receiving grace from others, from people, apart from God at the moment, from people. How do you go at receiving grace? How do you go at admitting you need help spiritually or even physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically? How do you go at admitting that sometimes, probably often, like me, you're weak and you need help? And then, having thought about that for a moment, how do I react? How does the way we automatically and instinctively react to the offer of grace impact our reaction to God's grace? Something to think about as we go through this passage. The greatest grace that's ever been shown to the world was the coming of our Lord Jesus into the world, the ultimate doctor, the ultimate physician. And in our passage, we're told, it's so nice when this happens, it doesn't always happen in the Bible, but it happens here, we're told clearly and explicitly why Jesus came into the world. <clears throat> this is information that the prophets of old would have given their right arm to know. They knew a Messiah was coming, they prophesied about it, they didn't know exactly why, they didn't know exactly when, they didn't know exactly who, but here we know who and when and why, written down for us in Mark chapter 2. It was Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, who came into the world, and he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What he means by this, in practice, we see in the preceding verses before verse 17. So we're going to look at those first. As we know from the first chapter and a half of Mark's gospel so far, Jesus came into the world and he's gathering some disciples, some fairly unlikely disciples, really. Last week he gathered a couple of average Joe fishermen. He gathered Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. He gathered James and his brother John. He called them and instantly they followed him. Why? Because he was almighty, maybe. Because of his aura, possibly. Because they'd heard the stories and what was going on. Could have been all three. Likely. Leaving their nets and James and John, their father also, they left their livelihood behind, they left their family behind. That's a challenge, isn't it? They prioritised Jesus over their work and their family to follow him. Surprising to many that he called for fishermen, but probably not shocking to anyone. But the next person he calls leaves everyone's jaws on the floor in disbelief. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And again, this man jumped up from where he was and followed Jesus straight away, instantly, without question. Levi! He called Levi. Can you believe it? Levi. <laughs> really? Wow. Who can believe he called? I can see your faces. Levi. Like, wow. Really? As if he called Levi. What's another name for Levi? Anyone know? 
from the Bible? Levi's talked about in Matthew too. Levi and Matthew, same guy. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, he talks about the calling of Matthew from the tax collector's booth. For some reason, he's got this other name, Levi. Happens a bit in the Bible. They have two names. Levi, Matthew, same guy. Mark calls him Levi here in his story. Matthew calls him Matthew himself. Now, there's a few things to know. Firstly, Levi was a Jewish tax collector. He was a Jew by blood, but he worked for the Gentile Romans collecting taxes from people. They don't care if you're poor. They don't care if you can't afford it. You owe this much tax, you pay it, or else you get arrested and you go to prison. And the tax collectors would also skim off the top and take a bit extra for themselves, and the Romans didn't care as long as they got their taxes. So the taxes, tax collectors had effectively sold their souls to the devil, who was the Roman Empire. And he set up his booth beside the lake. So he's also collecting taxes from the fishermen and the merchants who come past as well, from Gentiles. He's mixing with Gentiles. He's mixing with the Romans. This guy is a scumbag, Levi of all people. Why would Jesus call this guy to come and join his team? Excuse the chatter about the West Tigers, but now I'm their chaplain. It's going to get worse. The West Tigers, they've, they've bought a new player this year called Jerome Luai. He's just won the comp three times with the Panthers, so we're hoping he's going to be good. He's going to help us win some footy matches because he must be a really good player if he's been in the winning team, winning team for three years. We're hoping he's going to help us out. Jesus is holy, pure, blameless, descendant from heaven. You think... You would think he would want other people to join his team who are a bit like him, who are going to kind of, you know, help with the sort of what they're on about. He'd want other people who are holy and pure and blameless on his team, wouldn't he? On the Jesus team. But he calls Levi the tax collector. What's he going to add to the team? Well... Why did Jesus come? For the sick. He came for the unrighteous, for sinners, just like Levi. And not just Levi, the scandal gets worse, but all Levi's friends too. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus goes to Levi's house for a feed after calling him from his booth. And it seems that Levi's friends or associates, I don't know if he's got any friends, his associates turn up too, and they all do the most intimate thing you can possibly do with someone you're not married to. They share a meal. They eat together. When you eat together with somebody, you open yourself up you, to their company. You welcome their company into your midst. And Jesus is doing this with tax collectors and sinners. Well, the religious leaders of the day, the teachers of the day, the Pharisees, they're at best confused at worst, furious. If you have a look in your Bibles, I want, I want you to kind of consider that for the rest of the little time we spend here. Are they, are they just confused or are they furious? What do you reckon? 
Why is this supposed holy man, the one prophesied from long ago, mixing with these despised, traitorous outcasts? Why is he doing this? Well, we know, don't we? Because Mark told us. Because Jesus came to call the sick. He came for the unrighteous, the sinners, not those who think they're okay and don't need help, the self-righteous. Jesus is the ultimate doctor. And he's coming to the world to heal the sick and ultimately the spiritually sick. And with Jesus comes this whole new kingdom, this new law of grace that is incompatible with the legalistic structures of the day that the Pharisees had constructed over centuries. The Pharisees had misinterpreted God's good law and made it into this binding law that they had to submit to. They added in all these extra rules as well, dozens and dozens of extra rules as a distortion of the worship of the one true God. And what they don't realise is that in their very midst is the one true God, Jesus. He's the one through whom all things are created, through whom all things are sustained. It's from him the law came that they've twisted and distorted. And they've collapsed the free and rich worship of this extraordinary God down to rule-keeping, such as fasting on the Sabbath. And in verse 18, again, the maker of all things and all people is again questioned about his motives and his ways, which I guess makes sense. It's new, it's different, it's, it's unusual. People have questions, that's good. But the ways question to me still seems obnoxious, given he is who he is. Verse 18, now John's disciples, the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't fasting? Now, before we answer that question or look at what Jesus' answer to that question was, the purpose of fasting in the Bible, fasting had a good purpose. It was there to dedicate time that you might have spent eating to prayer and to worship of God. Most commonly, people fasted when they were mourning. They fasted in sackcloth and ashes. They abstained from food. Of course, they're mourning over someone's death or more commonly over their own sin. The great king of Nineveh in the book of Jonah fasted and mourned over his sin. Fasting is a good thing. Perhaps we could do with a bit of fasting as well. Perhaps we could fast from Netflix or Stan or Disney one night a week to spend more time in God's word and prayer. That would be a good fast. But if we said, I must not watch Netflix on Thursday nights, I must read my Bible and I must pray and pray and subsequently God will be pleased with me and let me into heaven. Not a good way to fast. It's just become legalism and that's what the Pharisees had slipped into. We must fast, otherwise God will not be pleased with us. In other words, reject us. Well, Jesus says, like, you're missing the point. All these things given by God were a grace, not a law. Jesus said, 
how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? How can people at a wedding fast? It doesn't make sense. At a, at a reception, you don't fast, you feast. They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and on that day they will fast. Jesus is the bridegroom and we the church are the bride. That's really clear in Revelation 21, which incidentally I'm preaching on at Jordan and Abbey's wedding this coming Saturday. Revelation 21. So there you go. Jesus is the bridegroom, we the church, the bride. How can God's disciples, his church, possibly fast now that Jesus is with them? They've got the bridegroom in their midst. It's the time to celebrate. It's the time for joy. It's the time for feasting. The solution to the curse of Satan is at hand. The vanquishing of sin and death is here. How can they possibly fast and mourn when Jesus has come? Of course, they shouldn't. They should feast. They should have great joy because Jesus is here, assuming they know who he is, and the Pharisees don't. We of all people in the world, as followers of Jesus, should have joy, great happiness each day because we know that Jesus has come. And we know that he's coming back. We have so much to celebrate and be glad about as followers of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven once and for all. Fasting can be a good thing, but we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We rejoice as followers of Jesus. But Jesus knows that his enemies are many, and he knows, of course he knows, that ultimately he will go to the cross, which he came into the world to do. And on that day, his people will mourn and weep and fast, and rightly so, and they did. But a new order has come. The one who created this new order and is Lord over this new order is here. Jesus is Lord over fasting. And he says, now's not the time to fast. And he says, fasting is a gift. Fasting is a grace. Fasting is a tool in our hands for worshipping God. Fasting is not a yoke around our neck. Our allegiance is to Jesus. The Lord over fasting. The Lord over the Sabbath. And you can't shove the Lord of fasting into this man-made legal system that the Pharisees have created. You can't shove Jesus into that, which is what they want to do. Why are you doing this? You should be doing this. Why are you not fasting? You should be fasting. And you can't shove Jesus into this man-made Sabbath observance Sabbath observance that the Pharisees have come up with. He's Lord over the Sabbath. Hence he says these two interesting little parable stories. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. He's the new cloth. The Pharisee's legal system is the old garment. Otherwise, a new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wine skins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. If you sew a new cloth into old fabric and then you wash the garment, the new fabric shrinks and it tears away from the old garment. It makes a bigger hole. 
If you put new wine into old wineskins, the wine ferments into, in the wineskins, and in the fermenting process, it bursts the old wineskin. So new wine has to go into new wineskins. The point is you can't shove Jesus, this new law of grace, into the Pharisees' old system of legalism. Jesus is the new law of grace. Jesus gives himself in service to others, but his allegiance is to God alone. Jesus gives his life to the world, but he's not captive to the world. The question then is for all people, will they attempt to shove Jesus into their existing way of life? Will they attempt to kind of add him on to their old existing ways of life? Or will they abandon their old way of life and join the wedding banquet that's been put on by Jesus and follow him? We can't shove our old way of life and Jesus. We can't mush these two things together any more than you can mush together new garments with old garment or new wine with old wineskins. To accept Jesus and to follow him is to abandon our old ways of life and our old ways of thinking and to follow Jesus anew. It's what we see in the disciples. Simon and Andrew, James and John and now Levi left their old life behind, even their family, to follow Jesus completely. Jesus has come to save sinners And his ways are of grace, not law. And we see this new law of grace applied in the next few verses. Again, Jesus' question this time about the Sabbath, and we see him delegalize the Sabbath. Verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they picked some heads of grain just to munch on. They were hungry. doesn't say munch on. I added that in. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Sabbath lasted from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And the Pharisees had created a system of law that meant you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath whatsoever. whatsoever. Today, some Jews won't turn a light switch on on the Sabbath because that's work. Jesus said, have you never read what David did? He's talking about 1 Samuel 21. He and his disciples, they were running, he and his men were running from Saul and they took refuge inside a temple, and the priest offered them the bread that was generally only dedicated for the priests, but they were there, and they were in danger, and they were hungry, so they ate the bread. In other words, the priority of human human life took priority over keeping the law, which was good and which was right. They were starving and in need, so the grace to provide for human life took precedence over the law. Of course it did. The law is made for man, not man for the law. Verse 27, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath as well. The Sabbath is a really good thing. It was put in place so that we would take a day of rest for a number of reasons. Firstly, we're finite creatures. We need to rest. We can't work all the time. You've probably tried it. 
things go bad when you try to work all the time and don't rest. Secondly, it gives you a day dedicated to worship of the Lord, a day carved out for praising God, resting. Thirdly, it forces you to realise God doesn't stop working when I stop working. The world continues on even when I stop. God is in control. It reminds us that God's in control. The Sabbath is a really good thing. And the Sabbath points us towards the ultimate Sabbath rest to come in eternity. The Sabbath is a gift. But the Pharisees turned it into something they had to serve. They had to serve the Sabbath. They had to keep it or else. Do you know, we can do the same with church if we're not careful. Gathering together is a good gift from God. It's such a good gift. It's encouraging. It's spiritually nourishing to come together and sing God's praises and hear from God's word. It's, church is a gift. The gathering is a gift from God. Growth groups are a gift as well, a blessing to us. Necessary for our spiritual health. It's part of our human makeup as people who are still sinners, saved by grace. We need to keep gathering with Christians. It's part of the good routine of life that God has given us that we need for our spiritual health. But we can see it as a burden, can't we? No, I have to go to church. Oh, what a burden. Sometimes it can be difficult with kids. I get it. I get it. I really do. Lara gets that even more than me. But church is a gift, not a burden that we have to serve. Fourth and final point, which I don't have a slide for. Oh, there you go. It's on your handouts. Law or grace, evil or good, death or life. Beautifully, Mark sums up the whole teaching of this section in one interaction between Jesus and a man with a shriveled hand in the viewing of the disciples. And, of course, the Pharisees are there watching closely. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, chapter 3, verse 1, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. <clears throat> Heaven forbid. Now here we're starting to see if the Pharisees are just confused or furious. Are their motives humble discovery or proud indignation? They're watching closely to see if Jesus will disobey the man-made laws. You see what I said there? It's ridiculous that sounds. They're watching the creator of all things closely to see if he will disobey man-made laws. That's bananas. He, he made man. <laughs> He's a creator and sustainer of the universe. He doesn't submit to man-made laws, but they're watching closely to see what he's going to do. Who on earth do these guys think they are? Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. You can see where this is going. Jesus hasn't come to humiliate. He's come to educate. Jesus asked the, the Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? This is the moment in the class where you're like, oh, 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 pick me, pick me, pick me. This is an easy one. I know this one. This is an easy quiz question. Jesus it's lawful to do good, obviously. It's lawful to save life, right? Do I get a star? The Pharisees 
astonishingly remains silent. Wow. Wow. Really? These are the religious leaders of the day. These are the ones caring for God's people, supposedly. And when Jesus says, what's better, good or evil, life or death, they've got no response. That's, that's concerning. He looked around them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now he's got a choice here, hasn't he? The man with the shriveled hand. He's just been offered grace. I can help you here. Would you like my help? No, it's all right. Thanks anyway. The other hand's good. I'll be all right. He could do that. He could choose self-righteousness. One hand's plenty. Or, no, all good. It's okay. I just Googled this really good physio regime this morning on my stone tablet. Anyone? Badumching? I reckon I can sort this out myself. <laughs> Workspace righteousness. Is he going to choose law or grace? He's got a shriveled hand. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? What would you do? Well, this is what he did. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. No physio required. Then the Pharisees realized once and for all that this truly is the Son of God and they bowed down and worshipped him. Is that what it says? What a shame. Oh no. The Pharisees went out on the Sabbath, I might add. Allow me to rephrase this little last bit of the passage. Okay. The Pharisees went to work on the Sabbath and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Wow. Unbelievable irony. You shouldn't heal on the Sabbath, but it's okay for us to plot to kill on the Sabbath. What's this mean for us today? The first question is, what will you choose? Law or grace? Evil or good? Death or life? To choose a path of self-righteousness or self-salvation is to choose law in place of God's loving grace. It's to reject the Lord Jesus, which is by definition evil. It's to continue to wander blindly down the path that leads to death rather than life. And it's remarkably easy to slip into this mode of thinking in a wealthy city where many of us are well-educated, where exchange and trade is the norm. We don't live in a, a, a poor community where grace and sharing is normal. We live in a wealthy city where exchange and trade is normal. We pay for goods, we pay for food and cars and things, we pay for services, we pay for swimming lessons, we pay for preschool, we pay for whatever. We pay and we get, that's what we do. That's what we're brought up doing, that's what we do. We pay, you get. You get invited for lunch from someone out of the goodness of your heart. Paul says, come over for lunch. I say, okay, how much is it gonna cost? That's the norm. 
Or tell me you haven't done this. Paul invites us over for lunch. We go over for lunch. Then we go home. We go, right, we're going to have the wreath mullers over for lunch because we owe them. Why do we owe them? <laughs> In a loving, gracious community where we give and we share out of grace and love, we don't owe them, actually. They did it out of love and grace. Would it be nice to graciously, lovingly have them over? Sure, at some point. But we don't owe them. There's no grace in that. We steal their joy. The minute I feel like I owe Paul because he had us for lunch, I steal his joy of giving to me generously from his heart. I steal it. Can you see that? I steal the grace. In a loving Christian community saved by grace, why do we keep give, keeping score? Why do we keep score? You've had me over two times, I've had you over three times, you owe me one, blah, 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 blah. You mowed my lawn, I've got to mow your lawn, or wash your car, or something. It can't just be we all give and we don't keep score. Because we're sinners, and because particularly we live in a big city where it's all about trade and exchange. And we rob one another of the joy of just giving. And we shape our thinking towards Jesus and his grace in the same way. Jesus has given me all these good things. I need to, therefore, blah. Fill in the blank for yourself. Pray more, read my Bible more, go to church more, go to growth group more. Do something to pay for Jesus' blood. I think we need to work hard, actually, at receiving grace with thanksgiving and joy. And so I think what we can do as a community is, work, is, is offer to do things for one another and then chip each other if we say, <laughs> well, I owe you. No, you don't owe me anything. This is a grace from me to you. Acts chapter 2, what a beautiful picture. Everyone shared everything on went without. If we get complacent about God's grace to us, we will get resentful, even bitter, and church becomes a burden and growth group becomes a burden and serving becomes a burden because we forget Jesus' great grace to us. We need to practice grace to one another, lest our hearts grow stubborn and our thankfulness shrivels and we forget to reach out afresh each day and receive God's gift of grace to us afresh each day. It's by grace we've been saved. Remember that, rejoice in it, and practice it amongst one another. There's one more thing I want to say. I know I've been talking too long. Because it's on my heart big time this week. What are we going to do about the global pandemic of legalism? Or people who think they're okay with God, but they're not. People who, who work for their salvation because of secularism or because of their religion. They need Jesus' grace. They don't have it. They don't think they need it. They think they're okay. What do we do? Well, again, I'm reminded, why did Jesus come? Not for the righteous, but sinners. And if we're followers of Jesus, then what are we doing as Christians? 
What do we do? If we're following him and he came for the righteous, he came not for the righteous but sinners, what do we do as his people? Does following Jesus mean we just hang out with people he saved? And that's it. That idea jars me terribly and I hope it jars you as well. For surely following Jesus means getting amongst the work of saving sinners as well with him. Surely. My nephew got caught in a rip two weeks ago on holidays. And his mum, my sister-in-law, she went out to try and save him. She got caught in the rip as well. They're both followers of Jesus. Had they died, they would be with him right now and they'd be safe. We would be brokenhearted for the rest of our lives. But they would be safe. They didn't die. They were saved by a surfer and then her husband, my brother-in-law, came over and saved them and got them out, and it was okay. He wasn't particularly close, but a few more minutes, yeah. Had they died, the rest of us will be brokenhearted until we see them again in heaven, but at least we know they'd be safe with Jesus because their trust is in him. That's not the case for thousands of people who live around us. If they drown, that's it. No salvation, no eternal life. What are we going to do? Jesus came not for the righteous but sinners and we're followers of him. We're busy, I know. We've got kids and we've got jobs and we've got grandkids and genuinely that takes time. (laughs) It does and energy a lot, I know, it does. But we've got to make sure we don't use it as an excuse for not doing all we can for people who don't know Jesus. And I'm ashamed to say this is the first time I've pulled out my share card since probably the beginning of December to pray for people that I know that don't know Jesus, but it is, and I want to repent of that right now. I haven't been praying for opportunities to share the gospel with the lost. And I need to start again today, this afternoon, praying and maybe you do too. You just start praying again for people you know who don't know Jesus. And by God's grace, we've got all these opportunities this term. This training that's coming up, this is rare. To be able to get your hands on John Lavender from ENC is hard. Please make every effort, kids and whatnot, to get to the training Wednesday week or Thursday week. Go with a few friends. It'll be fun. Have some dinner. Get trained to share the gospel. Easter's going to be coming up soon. Two months. It's Easter. Crazy. Who can you be talking to and trying to share the gospel with? Invite them to Easter. The Mark drama is six weeks after that. Take them to the Mark drama. Do something. (laughs) I know you're busy and I know you're tired. And I'm not asking this to burden you. But I'm saying as followers of Jesus, we need to, this needs to be a high priority for us. He's trying to get in the space, mix with, invite people over who don't know Jesus and do your best to share the gospel with them. Don't feel guilt. Don't feel burden. 
feel blessed by God's grace and this exciting opportunity to share God's grace with others that they might know eternal life too with our great Saviour. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for Jesus who came into the world for sinners just like us. He didn't come for those who were unwilling to acknowledge that they needed help. He came for those who admit they're sinners in need of help. And we thank you for all in this room who you moved to repentance and faith. And we pray for any in this room who have not yet repented of their sin and reached out their hand to accept grace from Jesus, that you will move in them to accept his grace. God, we pray now for all those people we know and love who don't yet know Jesus. We turn our minds to them now, our friends, our neighbours, our family members, our colleagues, school parents and things that we know who haven't yet repented of their sin, who don't yet know about your grace, who face judgment. And we ask you'll give us opportunities to get to know them better, to meet with them, to share the gospel with them. And we ask that in doing so, they will be moved by you to repentance and faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.